Well, let's pray, and then we get into a favorite part of church history for many of us, the Reformation, the Reformers. They didn't have sunglasses, but uh, some people think my slides are too boring, so they, they decorate them up. The more lively folks in my family who help me with my slides. Let me open in prayer, and then I have a book giveaway. Lord, I thank you so much for our time this morning, time to learn. The Christian life is often one of edification, being equipped. Help us to learn more about the Bible, theology, and the history of our faith so that we might better defend the truth and present it to the world. We pray that you would enlighten us this morning in the name of Christ. Amen. Okay, so last week, and that was seven whole days ago, right? So last week, what did we cover last week? Who remembers? Pre-Reformation, nobody remembers. The pre-reformers, John Huss, okay, and others, right? Wycliffe, all right. So, who was the pre-reformer that, this is a question for the John Knox little book by Steve Lawson. Steve Lawson wrote a short biography on John Knox, less than, less than 120 pages. Who was the pre-reformer that translated the Bible into English? From the Latin Vulgate. Who is that? Who's got it? I hear some people going like this in the back. Wycliffe. All right. Who said it first? Britta? All right. And this to Britta. John Knox there. He is a reformer that we're going to get to, not today, in the coming weeks. Now, there was also Tyndale. Tyndale was a, a reformer during this time period. He, uh, he translated the Bible into English. But what was different about Tyndale? Yeah, he went from the Greek to English. Now that they had access to the Greek Bible, that was more accurate to go from Greek to English than to go through Latin, which is all the Wycliffe really had. They didn't have good Greek manuscripts in his day. And then Tyndale went back to the Hebrew Bible as well. And I don't think he finished the Old Testament uh, before they killed him. All right, Reformers. So this is Luther speaking of his, you, you might say, enemy. Enemy theologically. He called Erasmus a viper, thou very mouth and organ of Satan. So that's the kind of way that Luther spoke. Not recommended, recommending that you speak like that today. But we, we must remember that Christ and um, Paul had no problem saying, theologically speaking, that certain people were dogs, false teachers. Um, Peter even compared them to dogs returning to their own vomit. So uh, we must be careful in how we speak, but also not afraid to, to speak the truth strongly. Let's talk first of all about Erasmus. Erasmus is not a Protestant reformer. Uh, he's not one of the great reformers that we often think of. That starts with Martin Luther. But the work that Erasmus did, and Erasmus is a, a Catholic theologian and philosopher, the work that he did prepared the way for the Reformation. Just like the forerunners previously who prepared the way theologically, they were talking about how the Pope is not the leader of the church, how the scriptures alone tell us what to believe. Well, Erasmus did something very unique and that he put together all the Greek manuscripts that they had in his day and made a New Testament Bible in the original Greek. The closest they had to the original letters and manuscripts of the original New Testament writers. So let's get some history on him. Uh, he was what's called a religious humanist. Now today, a humanist is somebody who basically worships man. We'll talk a bit about that in the sermon today. 
Back then, in the Renaissance and the Reformation period, a humanist went back to the sources. They went back to the original writings that people had written long ago. So for the painters, they went back to the Greek and Roman painters, the original painters, and the classical Western civilization. And uh, the philosophy, they went back to Aristotle and Plato. Let's skip all this junk that came about in the Middle Ages and go back further to the original. Well, in the church, they, went, they wanted to go back to the original writings of Scripture. Now, we don't actually have the originals, but it's close as we could get. The earliest manuscripts. And at least the original language, which was Greek for the New Testament and Hebrew for the Old. So Erasmus was uh, very focused on that. You could say he was kind of obsessed about getting the best manuscripts for the New Testament that he could find. So he's often called the Prince of the Humanists. And it was an offshoot of the Renaissance, emphasized human learning and human interest, including the study of the classics. So it's not so much about speculations as, as it is about going back to the more original writings. And it was a challenge to what had happened during the Middle Ages. You remember I talked about scholasticism. And scholasticism was where you would sit in a class and you would just debate different views. What do you think? It's kind of like Bible studies in some churches today, right? Well, what do you think? Well, that's not what I think. Well, I went to this guy's church and he said this. And what do you think? And oh, what does Beth Moore say? And, and what, is, oh, what does Joel Osteen say? And, and what do you think? And then the teacher rolls in and says, well, here's what I think. That's a watered-down way of thinking of scholasticism. And they would just sit in a classroom and everybody would debate their own views and they would cite the church fathers and they would cite Aristotle the philosopher and Plato. And the humanist said, look, let's just go back to the scriptures and let's get it in its purest form in the original language. And so this really challenged what was going on with scholasticism. And also in the secular realm, we call that the Renaissance, where they're trying to go back to the original art and writings of Rome and Greece. Erasmus, he, he really wanted to focus on the study of the Bible and, and some, somewhat in the church fathers, especially the Greek ones, which had not been as well preserved, the Greek manuscripts of the early church fathers. And they wanted to reform that way of thinking. And that, of course, would lead to changes in the way that people live, the conduct, the, the nature of theology. So here he is, happy-looking guy, right? I said nobody smiled in paintings and pictures before the 1960s, but he's kind of trying to smile a little bit. He studied in Paris in 1499. He went to England. So this is a world traveler. He's Dutch. He goes to, to Paris. Um, uh, that's in France. He goes to England. What allowed him to do that? Well, there was this universal language of Latin. So Erasmus spoke Latin, studied in Latin, which meant you could go anywhere in Europe to study and teach. He went to study Greek, though, in England under John Collette and Thomas More. These were Catholic theologians. Remember, the Catholic Church is still going full force, but there are some people that are starting to shake up the movement, and we looked at those last week. Eventually, Erasmus comes to teach at Cambridge for a few years, and he really became a master of the Greek New Testament. They're starting to discover some grammar at the time, and some manuscripts are getting circulated because what's happened what happened in the mid-1500s is the Muslims pushed out all the Greek Christians in the Byzantine Empire. Constantinople fell. They changed the name to, to Istanbul later. And all of those folks grabbed their treasures that had been there for 1,500 years, and they ran to where? 
where Christians were in the West. They went to Rome. They went to Italy. And they took manuscripts with them. Manuscripts that they didn't want the Muslims to get a hold of because they're just going to burn them. And so they would grab up their studies, grab up their books, and they would head and go west. And so these manuscripts start being poured into Europe and copied and circulated around. So by the 1500s, people are studying these, and Erasmus became master Greek teacher. He wrote a couple of works that are really influential for even Protestants today. One was called The Praise of Folly, where he makes fun of Roman Catholics. Now, he is a Roman Catholic, not a very good one, but we all know a lot of Roman Catholics who aren't very good at their superstition and tradition. Uh, He attacks the Roman traditions and superstitions. He makes fun of them. It's, It's the praise of folly. People are going around and they're praising themselves for being foolish. And so that sort of marked him as one that the Pope had to watch out for. Now, eventually he stays in the Catholic Church. He never leaves it. But the Pope was always keeping an eye on Erasmus. Here's the most influential work, though. He put out some editions of the New Testament in Greek. Now, the way you say it in Latin is uh, Novum Instrumentum and Novum Testamentum. So this was the Greek New Testament with translation and notes. It's not just here's your Greek Bible, but it had some notes. Now, one thing about this time period is any kind of study Bibles are not looked on very well, particularly if your notes don't agree with the official Catholic teaching. And so he wasn't trying to overthrow the the Catholic religion, but he wanted people to see where the Latin Vulgate had made mistakes, where the translator Jerome and people who had edited his translation later on had gone off course. And that's pretty important. When you're talking about the Bible, one word can change all of your theology. And that's exactly what happened with repentance. It had been mistranslated in Latin, and people started to think of it as penance, because that's what it sounded like. That's the meaning of the Latin word. And they thought, well, I'll just pay for my sins. I'll do penance. When it's actually repentance in the Greek, which means to change your direction and turn away from sin and turn to Christ. So he put out this New Testament. He began, the, the, the printing press had been functioning at this time, so he began to print editions, and he would find new manuscripts and print the next edition of the New Testament. And these became the standard for the New Testament Greek, and it would circulate around the Protestants. Eventually the Protestants would grab these. And this became an important text. If you want to debate what the Bible says, then you want to go to the Greek. And of course, the, the Roman theologians didn't like that so much because they were used to the Latin. So now they had to catch up also and, and learn the Greek as well. Uh, Erasmus wanted to reform the church. He had some problems with the Catholic church, but he wanted to do it through scholarship and self-criticism. He wasn't quite as bold as Luther or Calvin. He wasn't willing to put his life on the line. He wanted to work through scholarship. Maybe, now this is he didn't know much about the human heart, I don't think, but Maybe if you teach people enough of the truth, then they'll come around and move away from the teachings that are bad in the Roman Catholic Church. And self-criticism. Let's just criticize one another. So he wanted to reform the church from within, and he never officially broke with Rome. But he did not teach what the Reformers taught on salvation. He never taught justification by faith alone. This is a key doctrine for Luther and all those who would follow Erasmus had had no real issue with the salvation system that the Catholic Church taught. His issue was with corruption 
wealth, and the power of the Pope. So he disagreed with the reformers later. He wouldn't join their movement. He and Luther initially respected each other because they were both scholars. They were writing books. But when Erasmus did not agree to join Luther's movement, Luther called him a viper, a liar, the very mouth and organ of Satan. And they actually wrote a couple of books uh, against one another. The bondage of the will is Luther's. And so Erasmus was saying, no, we have free will. We can choose. And Luther said, no, look, the Bible says that our free will is bound. We cannot go above our sinful nature, our sinful hearts. Our freedom is only in choosing what level of sin we're going to commit and when we're going to commit it. It's in picking your sins for the day. That's your, that's your level of freedom. But you can't suddenly throw off all that sin and go and, and find God and, and save yourself. We don't have that kind of free will. So that brings us to Luther. So the Bible's out there. People are reading it in the Greek. And Luther is one of those men in a monastery who ends up studying and reading the New Testament that Erasmus helped publish. So there's Luther in his later years. He didn't look like that when he was a young man. He's born in Eisleben, Germany, 1483. So we're still in the late Middle Ages here. The late Middle Ages. His family moved to Mansfeld, uh, Germany, for economic reason. His father was successful, served on the town council. And Luther becomes an educated man. He knew Latin grammar. He knew the classics. He went through a good education for his time. At 13, he went off to study. So uh, teenagers would go off and study at what we would call college or university. And uh, this happened really up until modern times. Uh, he was he went to Madsburg to study rhetoric and logic. He was introduced there to humanism, this idea of going back to the original writings. And then he completed his early education in 1498 in Eisenach. Then he goes, this is an important move here, he goes to the University of Erfurt in 1501 because his father wants him to be a lawyer. His father wants him to go study law. You'll see the same with, with John Calvin wanting to study the law. Many of these men had minds in that they could parse the law, that they could study the wording there to try to make an argument. So his father wants him to go into law, and he sends him to, or he hopes to send him to one of the most prestigious German universities of its day. So Luther goes there because his father wants him to. And in those days especially, you, you did what your parents wanted because you're either stuck working with your father's business and being an apprentice or being an apprentice with somebody else in town. Or you go where your parents want you to go to university and train in that way. So of that year, July 2nd, he travels home for a visit. And on his travels, he is almost struck by lightning. So he's riding along. He's struck by lightning. He falls off his horse, throws him back. And he calls out, because he's a good Catholic, he calls out to St. Anne, save me. Save me, St. Anne. And... Of course, he didn't die from the lightning. He survives. It didn't quite hit him. And so because of that, because St. Anne supposedly saved him, he said, I promised God to go and be a monk. Even though his father wouldn't approve of that, his parents wouldn't like that. He thought he owed it to God for saving his life to become a monk. And I remember from our class a few weeks ago on the monastery and monkery, that was the thing to do if you really wanted to devote your life to God. You go become a monk. 
So his father didn't approve, but he did join the monastery right there in the town he was going to college in, in Erfurt. And uh, it was one that studied the writings of Augustine, a newer monastery. We talked about some of the older ones a few weeks ago. But this order of monks, their goal was to study old writings, particularly of Augustine. And the leader of that monastery was Staupitz. You can always remember Staupitz because Luther always came to him and said, you know, I've, I've sinned in this way today. And he just kept on, you know, I've thought this, I've thought that. Couldn't sleep last night and I had this sinful thought. And he just goes on and on. And Staupitz got tired of it. And so he would just tell Luther, stop it. So Staupitz, stop it. You can kind of remember that, right? Because Luther was of that type. He was very analytical of his own sinful flesh. And that's good in a way because it led him to look further into Scripture. So Stoppage was Luther's spiritual father. There's a lot of good movies you can watch on this. Uh, I think the, the uh, more modern one is, is pretty good in being accurate with Stoppage and Luther's relationship. Stoppage did encourage him to study further and continue in his studies. But again, they're still Roman Catholics at this point. Luther joins the monastery. There it is today. You can go to Erfurt. So there it is today. The monastery's still there, the building. So how did Luther get saved? He's a monk. He's at the monastery. Well, he details in a lot of his writings about how this happened. Other reformers won't say as much. Calvin doesn't, doesn't talk much about his conversion. But Luther does, and, and we're thankful that he does. After entering the monastery, he became consumed with the question of his own salvation, preoccupied with the fact that his sins deserve divine wrath. So his every thought he realizes is sinful. Flesh is sinful. His heart is sinful. And, and a Catholic doesn't think like Protestants do. They don't sit around and say, I have peace with God. I'm saved. I just need to grow in my sanctification. The, the, the true Catholic, Roman Catholic, understands that God's wrath is upon them and they have to work really hard to earn some of that salvation. And even then, they need help from all these other things. So Luther was preoccupied with that. And though he followed the monastic life to the letter, he could not get rid of the guilt he felt. So the harder he worked to become righteous, the harder he realized it is to become righteous. So he would later write, if a monk ever got to heaven by monkery, I would have gotten there. And, and that's kind of a play on words because they didn't use the word monkery. So he's making fun of that lifestyle. He's saying, look, if it was possible to be saved by being a good monk, then I would have been saved because I worked harder than any of them. You think of Paul, Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee of Pharisees. Luther was the monk of monkery. But in spite of the fasting, prayers, self-mortification, and confession, Luther continued to feel the heavy burden of his sin. And it's a joke that, that Stalpit said, Luther, come back to me when you have some real sins to confess. You come and confess all this stuff. Come back when you can have some real sins to confess. So he's studying the book of Romans. He's starting to teach. And he's going through books of the Bible. Because they really wanted to get back to the original and, and work through those books of the Bible and the New Testament with the Greek. And so he's studying the righteousness of God and he comes to Romans 1.17. And he understood there that justification is a single act of God declaring the sinner righteous. Luther's big struggle was with the righteousness of God. He realized we're sinners and God is righteous. How can we ever get the righteousness of God? 
Well, the Catholic system teaches you got to work for it. you got to work for it. So Luther said, fine, I'll work for it. And years of doing that, he realized it doesn't work. I, I can't work for it. I can't earn it. Finally, he realizes that Romans 1.17 is where God says he reveals, God reveals the righteousness of God to sinners. It's God who does that. It's God who declares them just, who declares them righteous. Rather than what he was learning in that day was you have a little faith and you do a lot of good works. That's the Catholic system. Luther realized that's not what the Bible teaches. So he likewise came to understand that justification is by grace through faith. And that's what it says over and over in Romans. It's not the result of works. So this was huge. Now, he doesn't just bolt out of the monastery and and change his life and start a movement. But you can imagine his thinking changes. His heart is changed by God at this point. He's regenerate. He talks about the gates of paradise being open to him because he realized the truth of the gospel. So he described his conversion as being led out of a dark prison house of self-inflicted penance into the daylight and fresh air of God's redeeming love. So this is around 1510. He's sent to Rome. So as a good monk that's a student, that's a scholar, he goes to Rome. He's sent there for a special task. And he starts to look around. He starts to see what Rome is all about, what the Pope is. Now, the Pope controls Rome at this time. And so he came to see the great sights of Christianity. But he left deeply disillusioned because it was very corrupt. Julius II was the Pope at the time, and he was building St. Peter's Basilica and the Sistine Chapel, famous works of art, spending a ton of money. Where did all that money come from? We talked about it a few weeks ago. Indulgences, all this tax system that the church put upon Christian Europe. Every person paid taxes to the church, which the churches gathered the money and sent most of it to Rome. So it wasn't even being used so much for local churches. It was being sent to Rome. And Luther gets down there and says, well, this is where all the money's going. All these poor people in Germany are being taxed by the Pope. They're paying indulgences, and it's coming to build these grand cathedrals, these works of art. And, and he really got tired of this place here. This is one of the step, uh, steps in uh, Rome where you're supposed to crawl up on your knees and say prayers. I think it's prayers to Mary up every step there. And in those days, you didn't have the, the cushions or the cloths, and so your knees would be bruised. And for the poor people, I'm sure bruised and and cracked and bleeding. And by the time you get to the top, you know, it's supposed to have taken off so many years of of purgatory if you did this. And so here's Luther. He's going to do this, and he sees all of these poor people going up these steps, thinking that's going to do something for them, crawling up these steps. And he's looking around, and he's seeing all of these wealthy priests and cardinals and bishops And he sees them hanging out with prostitutes and going into places that they shouldn't go. And he says the whole system's corrupt. So he's had a change of heart. And now he's being awakened to the problem with the Roman Catholic system. So here's from the movie here. The the, the one on the left is for today. And and then the right is probably closer to what it looked like back then. Here are people thinking that, hey, I can earn something. And you see the guy playing Luther there in his robe. So now he goes to Wittenberg to teach in 1511, and he wants to prepare for the Doctor of Theology degree. 
So they did have doctorates back then, not quite the same as today, but to be a teacher in the church, an official professor in the Catholic religion, you needed to have a doctor of theology. And because of Thomas Aquinas and all the Roman Catholics that had worked in theology, you could now go and, and receive that. So he went there, he got it in 1512, and he becomes the professor of biblical literature. So he needs to teach the Bible to not just people in the monastery or, or in uh, Erfurt, but all, now in the big city of Wittenberg, or Wittenberg, if you want to say it in German. So now he's teaching books of the Bible. He went through the Psalms, spent three years in the Psalms. This is expository Bible study. We would probably just say it's expository teaching, preaching, except the students could probably ask questions and talk a bit at the end to the teacher. He went through Romans. So these are working on his theology here. He's starting to think about what he truly believes about salvation. The Psalms, Romans, Galatians, Hebrews, Titus, Psalms again. He's hitting these books that really touch on repentance, that touch on justification by faith alone. And so he clarifies his views, because that's what you do when you study the Bible. You don't just take in information and become puffed up with knowledge. You let it shape you. The Bible's supposed to shape your theology, because that's where you get your theologies from Scripture. And so he's starting to change his views on justification. He's starting to realize, wow, I've had it so wrong. Not just the righteousness of God, but all these other things are not from Scripture that the church teaches at the time. So he starts preaching now at the church. So he's going through books in the university. He's now preaching in the church, and he will hold that as uh, that position as the preacher for the rest of his life. And he's really becoming disgusted with the Catholic Church. He's getting tired of the corruption. But he said, like Erasmus in many of his day, I will try to reform it from within. I will write books that can be published. I will preach sermons here in Wittenberg. I will teach in the university. And all of that surely will have an effect on the Roman Catholic system. Well, it's not going to, because that's a well-entrenched system by this point. It's existed for a thousand years. And it's really hard to make a change from the bottom up in that kind of system. You have to become the Pope. And if you become the Pope, you're not likely to change your views by then. Give away all that power. So... Here he is in Wittenberg, or a statue of him. I think that's a university, if I remember correctly. And so now we come to the point where he gets so fed up, he posts the uh, 95 Theses. Uh, the Pope's not, not one of those. Uh, he's, he's got this monkish hairstyle. Remember, they trim their hair to show how holy they are. It's kind of like the idea of a, a halo, dedicated life. That, that's... Still what he looks like at this time. He's dressing like a monk. He's still a monk. He's just a teaching monk now in the university. So the Pope at the time, and then the next Pope who comes on the scene right after Julius II dies, really pushed the indulgences. They wanted to finish the construction of the church. Today things get built pretty quick, but back then it would take decades. There's one cathedral in Spain. I think it's been going for 400 years. It's so grand that even with modern technology, they want to keep putting specific things. It might have been finished in the last few years, but hundreds of years, some of these cathedrals have been going. Well, St. Peter's Basilica, Leo X wants to finish it. And so he pushes indulgences more than has been pushed previously. And in northern Germany, Albert of uh, Hohenzollern 
was given charge of selling indulgences on Rome's behalf. So this is like the Roman tax system in Jesus' day. The empire of Rome didn't go collect its own taxes. They franchised it out to the local businessmen, who then would hire people to go collect taxes. Well, the Pope franchises this out, and Albert gets charge of northern Germany. Well, he appoints a worker to go collect, and that's Johann Tetzel. Johann Tetzel is a Dominican monk, and he's going to preach sermons that encourage the people to purchase indulgences. He would go out and say, look, your, your mom's burning in hell right now, or the purgatory fires, purgatory fires are so terrible, she's weeping, she's suffering. You can help your mom spend less time in purgatory if you put a coin in the coffer. Put a coin in the coffer. Get your family out of purgatory. And so Luther is fed up with that. They, they were even saying in that day, every time a, a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And he would just go around making really a dramatization of people suffering in purgatory. And, and the poor people would just be frightened to death. You know, they would be weeping and screaming and falling down to think of their dear grandma and their mom and their father and their maybe their teenage son who had died burning in the fires of purgatory. So Luther really got worked up about this. He had been to Rome. He saw where the money was going. He had heard Tetzel's preaching and saw what the people were were doing in response. And so he wrote up a list of 95 things that the church needed to correct. They're called the 95 Theses in Latin. And he put it on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg to protest what was an obvious abuse of indulgences. So don't think of the, the church uh, castle church door as some Washington, D.C., you know, like you put it on the White House door. This is where everybody posted announcements that were of a spiritual nature. So he wasn't doing anything crazy there except that He's making it known publicly his issues with the Pope. That's the most dangerous thing. Not that he tacked it on the door, but that now it's public and people are going to hear about it. And so he puts it on the wooden door there. You can still go there today and see those. And the the fact that he did that meant that now everyone's going to know because some of his friends grabbed that document and made copies of it and put it on the printing press and just started sending it out everywhere. Uh, a few years ago, I had a friend in seminary he was a little, he was a little edgy, and uh, he says, October thirty first, and he goes, I'm going to go to all the Catholic churches, and I'm going to tape on the door the ninety five theses. Do you want to go with me? So now I think I'll spend some time with my family tonight. But he was, he did it. As far as I know, he didn't get in trouble. But these theses themselves were primarily aimed at corruption within the Roman Catholic system. So don't think of this as some great theological tome. This is not his systematic theology on the gospel. This is not even about the gospel. It's really about corruption within the church. And so they weren't, they weren't really so Protestant or evangelical as we might think. The things he'll write later are going to be much more evangelical. One writer says these, these are not a protest against the Pope, the office in general, and the Roman church or any of her doctrines, not even against indulgences, but only against their abuse. So he wasn't at this point saying, get rid of it all. He was just saying, look, these things that we believe, they're being abused. They're, they're, they're being taken too far. That was his major concern. But he's already starting to think about some of the evangelical theology that we believe today from Scripture. He talks about sin. He talks about repentance. I think his first one was that 
the Christian life should be a life of repentance. Now that goes against Catholic teaching, which said it was a life of penance and works. He starts to undermine some of the things about the papacy. He talks about remission of guilt can only come from God. And the true treasury of the church is the gospel. So grab a copy sometime and read it. It's not as exciting as you might think, but put yourself in the shoes of what was going on in that day. And I mean, this was an all-out attack against some of the things that everybody took for common in the Catholic Church. The 95 Theses were quickly translated into German. Now the average person can read it. Latin, that's for the scholars. They can walk up to the door. What's the news this week? Oh, we got this guy over here talking about That's interesting. We'll debate him some later point. It goes into German now. Everybody can read it. It's like the daily tabloid in your home. And you can see what this guy Luther is saying. I mean, wow, that's crazy, they would have said. And the Pope was directly attacked in the document, even though it wasn't on his office so much as how he was abusing things. That was shocking, scandalous. Everybody wants to read about this. Who's going after the Pope? This guy Luther, i, I got to read about him. Also, Albert, the uh, guy who's in charge of collecting the indulgences, was under attack there. And he told Tetzel, look, prepare 94 theses to support indulgences. And that's why Luther had chosen 95. I'll give him one more back at him. How does Rome respond? How does the Pope respond? So this is a painting of the kind of uh, look that the Pope had in that day. and His um, attire royalty, soft, velvety robes. It was all about wealth and luxury by this time at the Vatican. So Leo X was very distracted with his political concerns. Remember, the Pope is all about controlling the kings of Europe. And France and Germany, uh, he, he wanted to focus on those kings because they were causing him trouble. So it took him a while to respond to Luther. He sort of shrugged his shoulders and said, I got bigger fish to fry. This guy... You know, he's just like a boar out there tearing up the, the vineyard. I'll worry about him later. So Luther, under the protection of Frederick the Wise, the prince of the area, the ruler of the area that Luther lived in, uh, Luther was protected by this guy. And, you know, he said, oh, that's just about monks. Um, it took a while for Frederick to understand Luther's theology. And by that point, Frederick supported Luther's theology. But Frederick had a lot of relics. If you watch the movie, you'll see where he's in his little room where he's collected all these relics. And he says, look, Luther, if, if, this, if what you're saying is true and we don't need relics, that's really going to hurt our tourism. That's going to hurt our business here in, uh, in Wittenberg where people come and, and look at these relics. By the way, Luther later would say that uh, to, the, to the Pope's calling him a boar in the vineyard. He would later say, yeah, I'm a boar in the vineyard. I'm tearing everything up. And uh, that's fine if you want to call me a boar. So now then, there's going to be a debate about Luther's teachings. And he's going to go off and debate against the best Catholic theologian on these issues of the day, Johannes Eck. So they, they have an initial debate between Eck, and a, who's a German Catholic scholar, and another guy who was already moving Protestant, Andreas Karlstadt. And so the debate there was in 1519. Eck came out as the winner of the debate because he was such a good speaker. His rhetorical ability was better. It wasn't because his arguments were from Scripture. It's just because he could talk better than the other guy. Later then, 
Luther and Eck are going to debate. And Luther had been in attendance at the previous debate along with his friend Melanchthon. So he knows what he's going to be up against. He knows that Johannes Eck is a good speaker. He can sway the people in the room. But Luther wants to come with good biblical arguments. So what's the debate about at this time? It's, it's about papal authority. And so he uses the Bible and he even cites the early church fathers. The reformers weren't against the church fathers. That helped them show, look, the people who came right after the apostles even agreed with us. So he cites the church fathers to make his case, but mainly he's coming from scripture. He effectively argued against the infallibility of the Pope. What is that? That's where when the Pope rules an official ruling, it's infallible. It cannot be in error unless some other Pope later changes it. But they never admit that it was an error the first time. Or there's three Popes all fighting against one another. And we saw that a few weeks ago, didn't we? They don't admit when they are in error, of course, which is often. Um, But they say the Pope cannot error. He is the prime ruler of all the church and the prime place of that church is in Rome. And even the church councils are not in error. They cannot be in error. When a church council meets, that's equal to Scripture. When a pope speaks officially, that's equal to Scripture. And Luther says, that's not in the Bible. And he made his case from Scripture. He also said, the Scripture is our final authority in all religious matters. You cannot go to the Pope and the councils. Who cares about that? Go to the Scripture. So Eck attempted to dissociate Luther with previous heretics. I mean, that's the way it goes, right? You don't, you don't go after the biblical debate because who's going to lose in this case? It's going to be Eck. So this is what teachers, false teachers do today. They just attack the person. They just slandered Luther. Luther, you're a heretic. Aren't you reading Wycliffe? Don't you have some books of John Huss? Aren't those guys heretics? Wasn't Wycliffe dug up and burned again after he had died? Wasn't John Huss killed at one of these church councils as a heretic? So people in attendance were kind of split. Who's the, got the right side here? They couldn't decide. They said some supported Eck, some supported Luther. Well, this was a, a significant debate for Luther because it helped him to work hard. When you're going to a debate, you work hard on your theology. And it helped him refine some issues Uh, like the authority of Scripture, the idea of the invisible church, that it's not the church as according to the Pope that's the true church. The invisible church represents all who have true faith in Christ. And those may or may not even be in the Catholic Church of that day. And also the fallibility of the Pope and church council. So he works hard on this, and he starts to put these things into his books, which are being published. He goes back to Wittenberg, he studies. Eck went back to Rome. And he told the Pope, look, he needs to be condemned. Luther is dangerous. He needs to be condemned. So Pope Leo issues a bull of excommunication against Luther. That comes from bulla, which is the seal of wax that they would put on this document. And the document would be delivered and you would open it. You have been excommunicated from the church. You're now punishable by death or whatever the punishment was. This was in 1520. Now, it doesn't mean anything unless the the secular authorities do something about it. And he's under the protection of Frederick of Saxony. Nothing's really going to happen because Frederick protects him. But if the Pope can get his hands on Luther, he will. And he'll try to use all these secular powers to do it. But what did Luther do? 
he builds a big bonfire in town. He says, here's, here's the Pope excommunicating me. And you can imagine people are just, you know, I can't believe this great, wonderful teacher, Luther, has been excommunicated. And he says, here's what I do with the Pope's bull. And he throws it in the fire and it burns up, which is quite an insult because he's saying, it means nothing to me. I could care less. Let me burn it. And, you know, this is an official communication from the Pope. How dare Luther do that? So he burns it there. Everybody's watching. He makes a clear stand at this point. There's no going back. So he gets excommunicated in 1520. He said he wanted to reform the church from within, but they've essentially kicked him out. Okay, fine. Luther's going to start his own movement at this point with others who are like-minded. It's not some great organized movement from the start, but it becomes that by the end. So he starts calling the Pope the Antichrist. He says, look, there are many Antichrists, and there's one coming Antichrist, and whoever the Pope is, that's the one. That's the coming Antichrist. He's the most lawless den of robbers, the most shameless of all brothels, the very kingdom of sin, death, and hell. Strong language. Uh, there were some evidences, though, that these things were true of the uh, system there in Rome, and he had seen much of it with his own eyes. On June uh, 15, 1520, the church issued a papal bull of excommunication, as we just mentioned, and they gave an official response to the 95 theses there. They said, Luther has 41 errors, and you have 60 days to recant. That's when he burns it, and at the end of 60 days, the Pope officially excommunicated him. So now he's called to the big debate, the Diet of Worms. Sounds wonderful. If you come to our Reformation celebration, there is usually these bowls out on the table for the kids. And they crunch up the Oreo cookies and make it look like dirt. And then they put the gummy worms in there. And that's your Diet of Worms. Well, in, in German, the W is pronounced a V sound. So it's Wurms. Wurms. And a diet is not what you eat in these days. It is a gathering, an assembly, a meeting, a debate, an official recognized gathering to hear. Uh, it's a trial, basically, of Luther's theology. So the Diet, a Diet of Wurms, and, uh, you know, this is my wife's joke again. Uh, the Diet of Worms, you know, eat a lot, obese with sin, try my Diet of Wurms. The Diet had already been called by Charles V. Charles V is the Holy Roman Emperor. So Frederick is a prince of the area called Saxony. Saxony is a part of Germany, which is essentially the Holy Roman Empire. Germany plus the top of Italy and some other little places along the, France, the French border. So Charles V is the most powerful man in the world at this time. He controls uh, pretty much all the Holy Roman Empire. His family's from Spain, and he has a relative who married Henry VIII in England. So he has great power. He's got the largest army, the most provinces. But he, it's not like he has all the power to do what he wants. He can't just march into Saxony and take Luther and arrest him. Because Frederick is one of the princes, and where they get the emperor for the Holy Roman Empire is by electing one of the princes. So if Charles V rebels against uh, one of his princes to get Luther, who's protecting him, then he's going to cause a civil war. And you don't want to cause a civil war in the Holy Roman Empire where half the 
half the areas, provinces are against one another. So he calls an official council and he asks Luther or, or pretty much insists that Luther come. And just like with Huss, they promise safe passage. If you come, we will not harm you. You're free to come. We will not arrest you or punish you. Just come and give us your thoughts. Give us your teachings. Defend your views. And this is very enticing for the, the new theologian because he just wrote some things that are very passionate. And he believes that these will truly get the gospel out, uh, an understanding of the true gospel. And they just have to say, look, if you believe what you write and what you preach, then come and tell us. We want to hear it, too. So they hold this trial uh, on the 17th and 18th. It's a two-day trial. And uh, the guy from Rome, the papal nuncio, came to represent the Pope. His name's Alexander. And here's what happened. They brought a stack of Luther's books out. And they said, are these your books? And he says, yes, those are my books. And will you recant of what you wrote in those books? So he's, he's really sweating. You know, he knows what's on the line here. He's wrote all these books, you know, stacks on the table. And so he says, can I have 24 hours to consider how I should respond? I want to go back and pray. So he goes back and he prays all night. And he understands that if he denies what he wrote in the books, he's denying the gospel. Because that's what he was writing about in a lot of those books. And so the next day he comes in and he divides his books up into three groups. He says, look, some of my books, a third of them, address religious issues that everyone agrees on. So I'm not going to recant of these or I'll be denying the truth. Basically, the people in the room had issues with the same things that these books address. Abuses. Everybody's talking about abuse and the Roman Catholic Church at this time. Then he says, another set of books address papal abuses specifically and corruption and I'm not going to recant on those because that just tells people we don't care about corruption and invites more corruption. And everybody would have said, okay, we understand. The first two groups, we understand. The last set is really what they were upset about. He said, I've got this third set of books that defend the gospel over against what you guys teach. And he admitted, they did sound harsh sometimes when you read them. You know, this, you're a viper, the organ of Satan and all that. But he says, I'm not going to recant that just because they sound harsh and you don't like them doesn't mean I'm going to recant. I'm not going to repent of writing those. That would violate the word of God because these books are on the gospel. They're on justification. And so I can't. I can't do it. And when pressed for a simple recantation, they, they just kept pressing him. Recant, recant, recant. He said, I'm conquered by the Holy Spirit, quoted by me. So he's been quoting from the scriptures, the Holy Scriptures. And my conscience is bound in the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for it is neither safe nor honest to act against one's conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me, God. Amen. There's a lot in between on the three dots there. He talks about, you know, the church councils have contradicted themselves and, and all of these pope rulings have contradicted themselves. But the only thing we can essentially stand on, he's saying, is the Holy Scriptures. And if I go against that, I'm going against my own conscience. Now today, people say, ah, conscience, who cares? In those days, and, and really all up until the modern times, 
The conscience was the thing you didn't go against. It's the thing in the Bible that says you need to have a clear conscience. Paul always talks about having a clear conscience before God. To go against conscience is a sin in and of itself. Because you know what's right to do and you're going against that. That is a sin. And he says, look, I would be sinning if I go against the conscience. My conscience tells me the Bible's truth. And the Holy Spirit has confirmed that through the writing of Scripture. And I stand here, I can do no other. So Luther's starting to leave, and pretty much everyone knows he's going to get taken and arrested. So he's, quote, kidnapped by his friends and taken away and hidden in a castle. They kidnap him, and then the rumor just gets around, well, somebody took Luther. The Pope knows it's not him and his side. No one knows who it is in the beginning. They probably figure it out, but now he's safe, tucked away in a castle, uh, out in the boonies. And he spends that time changing his name and, and writing and translating the New Testament. So he goes by Junker, Junker George, which means knight in German. And uh, people just refer to him as the knight George who's staying in the castle. And so he ends up translating, uh, I think, the New Testament or maybe the whole Bible into German. Which, by the way, if you go to the Bernie Library, I think they still have this. In Bernie, they have an old German Luther Bible. And it's not the first translation. It's a few edits later. And I think it's in the 1600s, this one is. And they, a family brought it from Germany to America. And they donated it over the years. They kept it and donated it to the library there. So you can see it in a glass case. And I want to say it's early 1600s. Anybody know the date on that? So on May 26, Charles V issues the Edict of Worms, which declared Luther to be a heretic and an outlaw who's worthy of death. So this is why he stays in the castle for some time, because people are now going to chase after him. There's basically a bounty. It's not like they had bounty hunters, but there's basically this idea that if you kill Luther, no big deal. You've done the church a big service. If you can get him arrested and brought to be burned at the stake, even better. So what did he do? He translated, okay, the New Testament. I couldn't remember if it was both new and old, but the New Testament, and they put out, 100,000 copies of that before he died. Uh, this does a lot, just like the English Bible did and, and Shakespeare did for English language. Uh, Luther, the German language is all over the place. You can you know, have all these variances in the language. Once the Bible gets translated into German, that becomes the official structure of the language and spelling and grammar and such. While Luther was away from Wittenberg, so he's not in his teaching position there, people began to take over. And these are uh, what's called the Anabaptist movement. They're very radical. His friend, Karl Stadt, who, remember, debated Johannes Eck first. And the me even more radical, Zwickau Prophets. It's one of the coolest names in church history, the Zwickau Prophets. Today, there's like the Kansas City Prophets. That's kind of boring sounding, you know, Kansas City. Zwickau Prophets. Uh, they came, they began to cause trouble in Wittenberg. They're teaching uh, false teaching. They're teaching uh, not just Reformation, but they're talking about treason. They're talking about rebellion, insurrection, taking over towns and villages. So the news of this moves Luther to give up his secret life in Wartburg Castle and come back to Wittenberg and stop these guys. And so he comes back and he preaches all of these famous sermons, which restored order to the city. I mean, he didn't just preach wimpy, light sermons. He comes back, he's always preached pretty hard, and he comes back and he tells these people, 
stop your sinful ways, stop listening to these guys, and live according to the Bible. Upon returning to Wittenberg, Luther insisted that the reforms uh, proceed with the support of Frederick. So he says, look, Frederick, you've had enough time. We're going to go forward with this, and you need to support me. And so uh, he restored the mass, fasting, and etc. that Karlstadt had removed. So that's a good thing, get rid of the mass, even though Karlstadt was very radical. Luther doesn't have as big of a problem with the mass, and so he brings it back in. He brings back in fasting. And he says, let's just keep all that the Bible is silent on. Now, this is a problem, and we still see it in the churches today. It's called the normative principle of worship. If the Bible doesn't say anything about it, then it's okay, as long as the Bible doesn't say it's wrong. And so you see this today in all kinds of crazy stuff that goes on in the churches. But in these days, Luther was just saying, let's keep things from the Catholic Church that aren't explicitly spoken against in Scripture. So if you go into a traditional uh, Lutheran church, why does it feel so different? Why does it feel so Catholic? This is one of the reasons. Karlstadt said, no, 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 let us retain only what is mentioned in the Bible. The regulative principle. If the Bible says it, we do it, and we don't put anything else in the worship service. This is what John Calvin is going to pick up on. And John Calvin is going to teach, and the Puritans will pick up on that, and all the reforms since then, that we are to follow the regulative principle. The Bible regulates our worship. We don't get to add things like drama and skits and all these strange things, bells, smells, and whistles, just because they're not mentioned in Scripture. So there's Karlstadt. He leaves. Yeah, we'll pick up on that next week since I've still got quite a bit to go. And then we'll look more at these Anabaptists. Because there were some good ones that we sometimes forget about in church history. And there were a lot of bad ones who took over cities and raped and pillaged and did all kinds of crazy things in the name of the Reformation. All right, so let me close today. Lord, thank you so much for what you have recorded for us here in church history. Let us learn from these mighty men of the Reformation. Stand for the gospel. Let us stand for truth. And let us love Jesus Christ so much that we'll even put our lives on the line when it's needed. So I pray, Lord, we would be bold in the faith. Amen.